Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we share stories of people who experienced horrible things and try to imagine what they went through, as well as look for opportunities that could have made a difference and encourage people to help others that are being abused. The 2019 Joker film is a mind-bender. There seems to be an infinite amount of takeaways people have gotten from this film. To be honest, I've recorded several different intros before landing on this one, because the more I think about the film, the more my opinion evolves. At the same time, I feel like this movie is both saying so much, while also not really trying to make a statement at all. It could be taken so many ways. And I can see how people would worry that it would inspire violence because one of the most famous comic book villains is the protagonist. But I also feel like the film is very valuable with the perspective that it provides. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan, and this week's going to be a little different. We're talking about a movie, and we have a special guest with us, but... You'll figure that all out as we go, so we'll just jump into it. And we want to issue a spoiler alert now for the movie Joker, so if you haven't seen it and you don't want it to be spoiled, just know that you've been warned. On July 20th, 2012, there was a mass shooting during the screening of The Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Colorado. Twelve people were killed and 70 others were injured during this terrible tragedy. Because the shooter had bright red hair, some people speculated that the act was in imitation of the Joker from the film. But this ended up just being a complete rumor. Even the district attorney who prosecuted the shooter verified this. With the recent release of the 2019 movie Joker, it's understandable for the survivors of the Aurora shootings and the families of the victims to be wary or even completely averse to the idea of supporting the film. But to the rest of us, is it fair to apply a label to a piece of art based on false rumors? When you dig deeper into the actual act, you learn it was far more complicated. And if you want to know more about the details behind the event, we suggest you go listen to episode 243 of the Generation Y podcast, where they did a deep dive into the situation. And speaking of Generation Y, we have a guest with us today. So do you want to introduce yourself? I am Justin from the Generation Y. Yeah, we're happy to have you with us today. We heard you recommend The Joker on your podcast, and we also saw your Instagram post. That's why we ended up going to see it, and we were, like, blown away by it. You said you had a lot of thoughts about the film, so... There was a lot of media buzz before the release of Joker, People referred to the movie as a training manual for incels. Even the U.S. military like, notified its troops about potential violence at the screenings. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds an 89% audience score, but the critic score is much lower at 69%. So the media and critics really painted this movie as something to be wary of, something that might end up causing more harm than good, and even something we should avoid. But with all this negative press, the movie has made a huge profit. As of today, the movie has made over $938 million worldwide, after only spending $55 million to make it. In fact, the studio actually gave them a lower budget to try to discourage them from making the film. So it makes you wonder how the movie's doing so well, even with all this negative press. The first thing I would say is any press is good press. Uh, so the negative press just led more people to go watch it. I mean, I remember when Marilyn Manson was on tour, you know, all the church groups and whatnot went out and protested him and it just got him more sold out shows. And I think the 
cancel culture mentality is starting to fizzle out a little bit and people are not caring as much because people want to point and accuse others of being incels or alt-right or whatever. And it's, it happens so much. It's like the boy who cried wolf and no one's listening anymore because it doesn't mean anything. Right. It feels like people forget that they're watching a piece of art and instead want to find some kind of agenda or black and white issue within the film. And that's something that stood out to me is at the end of the movie, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings, but it's not like the movie ended and you had a distinct, like, this is who I was supposed to root for. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of comic book movies these days, there is that distinct line between good and evil and the movie tells you what you should feel about everything that happened in the movie. But with this movie... I mean, there was a lot of thoughts running through my head and just feelings, and I wanted to talk about it, but it, uh, you know, it was so nuanced and ambiguous that it wasn't like telling you what you should feel, you know? And obviously, some of the stuff in the movie is black and white. Like, you should never murder someone, but seeing the perspective of the Joker and how he got to that point, it was a, just a completely new perspective, and I really liked it. But we'll get into more details later. Uh, we're going to do a walkthrough of the different beats of the movie directly from the IMDb synopsis. And then we'll just jump in whenever we have something to say. That sounds good to everyone? That yeah, obviously. Good. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> well, Rosie, do you want to start reading the synopsis? Oh, I do. Okay. So the Joker begins in the fictional city of Gotham. I think we all know about Gotham. It's best known for being the town of where Batman is from. And it's 1981, and the city is not doing well, as usual. Their city citizens are living in poverty, and the lower-class citizens are struggling. Now, Arthur Fleck, played by Joaquin Phoenix, works as a clown-for-hire company that's called Ha Ha's. And he's tasked with advertising a store by dancing and waving a sign around. The sign gets snatched by a group of punk teenagers, forcing Arthur to chase them into an alley. Now, they take the sign and they smash it against his face, and then they proceed to mercilessly, mercilessly kick him while he's down. That's quite an introduction to the movie, like grabs your attention Instant right away. Instant tears. <laughs> that was so emotional. In this era, Gotham is struggling with crime, unemployment, and poverty. And Arthur visits a social worker for his medication, as well as his ongoing mental health issues. On the bus ride home, a small child looks at Arthur. He makes silly faces that amuse the boy, but his mother tells Arthur to leave him alone. Arthur begins to laugh hysterically. And when the mother questions him, he hands her a card that explains that he has a condition that causes him to laugh the way that he does. And this it's actual real condition really called is. the okay. pseudo-bulbar effect. Which sounds absolutely terrible to have. I mean, yeah. now that I have seen the movie, it sounds just life-changing. Yeah, right away in the movie, you see that he is obviously really poor. He's working as a clown, and he's trying really hard to you know be a good person and spread joy like he making faces that kid on the bus but you also see he's struggling with mental disorders and he's trying to deal with that too he's going to a therapist and he's getting medication it shows a lot with the little screen time so far mm -hmm. arthur returns home where he lives with his ailing mother penny they sit and watch a talk show with host murray franklin arthur imagines himself being on the show and getting murray's attention in his fantasy Arthur charms the audience and Murray by telling them that he takes care of his mother. At Ha Ha's, Arthur is given a gun for protection by his co-worker Randall after he hears about the mugging incident. It's such an interesting scene where he needs to defend himself, but he's very unhinged. And this other guy just thinks it's okay to hand him a gun. <laughs> right? Yeah. Especially when it was a bunch of little kids. So Arthur is infatuated with his neighbor, the single mother. Oh, is it Sophie? I thought it was Sobe with a B. I guess we heard it wrong. I hope so. I thought Sobe was really cute. Well, Sophie Dumond. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Dumond, <laughs> okay. probably? Well, she speaks to him politely. It, he's super awkward and weird around her. And at one point, he spends his day following her. Later, she comes by his apartment and asks if he was following her, and he admits that he was. But she doesn't seem to be put off by it. Actually, he invites her to a stand-up comedy show where he's performing at. This part was just crazy to me. That stand-up comedy show was uh, cringe. Painful. 
<laughs> it was so painful. Yeah. So Arthur goes to the comedy club for his performance, and he starts off by laughing uncontrollably before going off on his routine, which really isn't very funny. There we see Sophie in the audience, and we hear people start to laugh at his jokes. Arthur later goes to the children's hospital to entertain them as a clown. The the hospital scene, you just think it's this, you know, wholesome, beautiful, happy scene where he's dancing for children. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, wait, I'm watching the Joker movie. Nothing is good. <laughs> Especially when that gun slides out of his pants. You really got handed to Joaquin, though, the way he portrayed every aspect of this movie. Like, whatever the director wanted us to see, Joaquin just delivered it perfectly. He is so good. I love him. He brought that gun with him, and it falls out on the floor. The children are absolutely terrified, as they should be. And he kind of tries to play it off, like, oh, funny, (laughs) my gun. He put his finger up to his mouth and said, shh. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I was surprised. It didn't seem like any of the adults in the room really reacted to it. Well, Maybe they weren't trying to because they didn't want to die. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. So, obviously, Arthur's boss later chews him out for this, as well as for losing the sign from the store where he got mugged. And to top things off, Randall claims that Arthur got the gun himself. Arthur gets fired, and he leaves HaHa's after calling Randall out on giving him the gun. Uh, Arthur's week only gets worse when he's told by a social worker that the city is cutting off funding and shutting down that facility. And that means that Arthur has nowhere else to get his medication. This is kind of a big part turning point in the movie because we saw in the beginning he was already struggling, but then all this stuff starts to pile on him, and then he finds out that the city is cutting their budget and they won't be providing these public social services anymore, and he'll be losing his medication. And you, when you get to know him, you're like, of all the people that shouldn't be cut off, <laughs> this guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's scary and foreboding kind of to think well this guy needs a lot of help and they're cutting him off and sadly i watched this happen with a lot of my friends and family where they would have access to their medications have access to a certain doctor that they gelled with and then insurance decides to do things differently or their insurance changes or something happens and now they no longer have access to that one doctor that they've had for the last 20 years or that one medication now they have to take a generic as opposed to the name brand and it just never seems to work out very well yeah when you are struggling with a disorder like that this help the medication and the therapy is such a important part of having a functional life these people didn't think about arthur when they cut the budget they're just thinking about the bottom line and like you said arthur needs it he was asking for it you know he knew he needed it it he was, was hard to watch for an increase in his meds right yeah yes. that's right especially when the and social he, worker saw oh, the notebook remember she's like did you bring your notebook and he eventually handed it over and the thing is filled with really creepy Stuff. A lot of red flags. And the only thing that alarmed her, I guess, was that quote. Remember, what would it say? I hope my life makes more sense when I'm dead. No, I hope my death makes more sense oh. than my life. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty similar. <laughs> it's, the, it's the thought that... Uh... <laughs> no med increase or anything. I don't know, but it must have all been due to the Well, yeah, funding. I think he said he was on seven different medications. Yeah, he said he was just sick of feeling bad all the time. Yeah. So... Before you read the next part, as most people know, Gotham has always been based loosely on New York. And in this movie, I won't even say it's loosely based on New York. I would say it's literally New York uh, because back in the early 80s, the trash men, the trash services, disposal services, they went on strike and the trash was piling up. And at that same time, we had a vigilante who got a gun and got on a subway. And when it's alleged that three minority males attempted to rob him, he shot all three of them and then fled the scene. Wow. And he was called the subway shooter. I had no idea about that. Yeah, me either. Very interesting. Huh. Was there also a super rat problem? Yeah, there was. (laughs) There was. (laughs) Still, probably. (laughs) 
Ryan didn't see the super rats in the background, and I, every time I'd nudge him well, profusely. I was focused on the, the focus of the scene. Well, I know, but they were the size of chickens. <laughs> I, I don't know how I missed that. I don't either. On the subway train ride home from Haha's in full clown getup, Arthur spots these three young Wall Street types harassing a woman. Arthur starts laughing and draws the attention of the man while the woman wisely flees from that car. The men approach Arthur and mock him and his laughter before they start to beat him up. Yeah, and remember, he's not actually laughing at what they're doing. He's got that condition where, he, like, when he's stressed out or he's anxious, he starts laughing. Arthur then pulls out his gun and shoots two of them dead before following the last guy out of the train and killing him on the stairs. In shock over what he just did, Arthur retreats into a bathroom, and after a moment, he begins to dance by himself. This part was so poetic to me. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean he just murdered three people and then he locks himself in the bathroom. Do you think he's gonna like stare at himself in the mirror and start crying? Yeah, like, in instead, shame. He like goes on to full relaxation dance routine. And I think that's when you see him find himself. Mm-hmm. And right. you see what gave him relief, what gave him a moment of clarity was violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way that he was pretty much coaxed into that spot by the way people were treating him i mean they literally had him on the floor and they were kicking the crap out of him i I would argue the the at least the first guy he shot he that would be self-defense stand your ground (laughs) uh second guy a little uh shaky a little gray area but the third guy was absolutely murder you can't chase somebody down who is no longer a threat and yeah them in the back and there again it shows how dangerous he is with his mental condition and when he's not medicated because he didn't even give it a second thought he just did it and then felt relief he got a taste of the violence and i just wanted to say one more thing i don't think that this scenario and the subway shooter in new york are they're related i think he put the the scene in the movie as a sort of a nod to that but he turns it on his head because he doesn't use three minorities who are on train he's using three wall street guys he turns the whole thing over to make you think, well, is this, is this just, is this uh, self-defense, is this murder? If we didn't like the vigilante in New York back in the 80s doing this, why would we cheer for him now shooting right. upper echelon elite white people? So it makes you think. And that's what I think is the beautiful part of that scene is it makes you question. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's so much nuance to it. Like you described, the first shot was self-defense and... It got a little more gray from there and then went to just straight up wrong. But because Arthur's the protagonist of the movie and we're seeing everything through his lens, it's confusing knowing what to think or feel about that. And you are forced to think and really think about everything that just happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a total mind bender. I love not knowing things that are just black and white, but having to like search through my mind. And try to figure it out for myself of what I should feel. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And they make you exercise your own ability to think things through. And like, what would I do in this situation? Instead of just straight up escapism, like, this is an easy movie to watch. And then when I'm done, I feel great. And it was awesome. Mm -hmm. You know? That's what Toy Story is for. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it exercises your whatever, your conscience. So the news of the three murders spread with someone seeing it as an attack on the wealthy, while others support the act. Thomas Wayne speaks out and condemns it. Arthur later finds one of Penny's letters to Thomas, which indicates that Arthur is Thomas's son. In the news broadcast, Thomas Wayne referred to a lot of the lower-class people in the city as clowns, and just kind of made like an offhand statement, but he kind of was condescendingly saying, like, I want to help these clowns, you know? When I hear that, I I thought it was a direct reference to Hillary Clinton calling people deplorables. That's what I heard. But everyone hears and gets something different from this movie. What's really interesting is I thought, well, that might be a, a nod to that reference. But when you insult people and just paint everyone with a general brush... You're not going to get a good response. And what did the city do when they're called clowns? (laughs) Right. They're like, okay, we'll be clowns. Mm -hmm. That's another aspect that this movie does is 
it shows you how people from different lifestyles that were dealt different hands in life, some have a terrible hand, like Arthur, there was so much that happened to him leading up to this, even before the events in the movie, mm. that mm -hmm. contributed to the way he was. So he was dealt a terrible hand. And then you have people like Thomas Wayne, who are billionaires, that their life is a lot different. And just the way different classes view each other. And like you said, if someone's able to label people as deplorables without even knowing them, it, it just says a lot about the way people view others that they don't understand. And I just want to make it clear that I actually don't care for our two-party system, and I am not trying to advocate for one side or another. It was just an observation I made during the movie. Mm -hmm. I felt right, it yeah. similar there. Yeah, I'm not even talking about the politics of it or anything. Just general humanity, you know, the way people view each other. So Arthur goes to Wayne Manor, where he meets young Bruce. And this part freaked me out because what kid would be like, oh, there's a strange man making faces at me walking to the gate. I'm going to follow. Right. I don't know. Just like you're in Gotham, dude. Like you should be running to your dad. But anyways, eventually they meet up at the gate and Arthur sticks his hands through and takes Bruce's face and sticks his thumbs in his mouth and makes him smile, which was like terrifying. Again, like the kid's like, oh, this is fun. Like right. He doesn't do anything. Well, there's a... There's a theory Is about there? this scene based on other scenes in the movie and stuff okay. that I'll talk about at the very end that could explain why it played out this way, but I don't want to spoil that okay. right now. Well, I was kind of like, oh, his fingers are really clean, huh? <laughs> Those taste good in your mouth? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> All the germaphobes got up and screamed. <laughs> <laughs> he sticks his fingers in his mouth. And then Alfred comes out to intervene and tells Arthur to get lost. And this is when Arthur mentions his mother and her involvement with Thomas. But Alfred says that he remembers Penny and that she was lying to him. Arthur tries to attack Alfred, but ends up running away. So, didn't go well. No, did not go well. Two police detectives, Burke and Garrity, go to Arthur's apartment to question him on the subway murders due to the word that the suspect was wearing clown makeup. And they know Arthur lost his job earlier that day. Arthur denies any involvement and gets the detectives to leave. Not long after, Penny falls ill and is hospitalized. Sophie sits by Arthur as he tends to his mother. Again, Sophie is the one that Arthur well, that's met way on the out subway and invited to his stand-up. Yeah, the beautiful or Not at the woman. subway, the elevator. But Sophie sits by Arthur as he's tending to his mom. Did we mention that after he killed those people on the subway, he just like let himself into Sophie's apartment and started making out with her and she was like, okay. And they started a relationship after that. Was that in the synopsis? No. It, but... There's a lot of things that this synopsis is leaving out, but it's cool. <laughs> if it's you want to cool. jump in and add any details, feel free to. Yeah. Um, well, there's a detail about Arthur and his mother. Um, well, I'll save it for later. The bath yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't have said anything. We'll save it. But that part, yeah, that's a something else, too. In the hospital, Arthur sees that the Murray show is playing a clip from his stand-up routine, but he's hurt to see that Murray only played it to mock Arthur. Now, that was also so depressing, because did you see that smile on his face as he looked up at the screen like, oh, wow. He's an amazing actor. Those emotions looked so real to me. Arthur finds Thomas at a public event and tries to confront him with the potential of him being his father. Yeah, and at this event, he literally walks through a police barricade and sneaks into a theater. He gets that uniform, and then he walks into the bathroom and confronts Thomas while he's peeing. So it's, <laughs> it's a weird situation. Like, how did he pull that off? He took off the coat, and the other guy who was washing his hands didn't seem to notice that this scraggly old greasy haired yeah, guy. Yeah, he was all of a sudden in a hoodie and that was a very interesting part. Well, it's you just felt that when he's in the bell hop uniform, he fits in. But as soon as he takes it off, you realize this is this is the upper echelon. This is how the other half lives, and he doesn't belong here. So he sticks mm -hmm. out. <laughs> Arthur mentions Penny, whom Thomas does remember, but Thomas says that she was delusional, and there's no way that Arthur could be his son. Arthur starts laughing in Thomas's face before Thomas punches Arthur and the man is thrown out of the building. Yeah. I was surprised to see Thomas just punch Arthur in the face. Well, if 
He's not his son, and that'd be really kind of creepy if this random guy was talking to you while you pee. That's true, but Arthur didn't like physically attack him or anything. No, but the laughing probably really spooked him. True. And he knows that he assaulted his son also. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because he said, Alfred told me. That's a good point. Arthur later receives a phone call from a rep for Murray's show. He's invited to appear as a guest, which Arthur accepts. Seeking hard proof, Arthur goes to Arkham... Is it Kronos Arkham? Yeah. Ar- Arkham yeah. Asylum. And speaks to a clerk, Carl, who has a file on Penny. When Carl says he can't give Arthur the info he wants, Arthur snatches the file and runs away to read it. The reality is that Penny adopted Arthur after he was found abandoned, and she abused him. One part of the file mentions Arthur having a head injury, which is most likely what caused him to have his laughing condition. Does that mention that her boyfriend also abused him? Well, no, but it, in the file it did say, that, remember she tied him to a radiator? Or somebody tied him to yeah, a radiator. Yeah, he was found tied to a radiator. And then there was a flashback where she was being questioned in the sane asylum, and she said, oh, he was, he was always laughing. He was such a happy boy. Yeah, that part that, really stood out mm-hmm. to you, didn't it? It did. It was like, Because, well, like, she didn't... You feel like she didn't realize he had a condition? Well, I don't even know about that, but it just really creeped me out. I think this was a huge mic drop part mm-hmm. of the movie where you now fully understand why he is the way he is. Yeah, and this is what I was referring to earlier of the things that formed him into, like you said, the way he is. He was abused as a child, and the father figure he had as a child because he was adopted, was terrible. And then he starts seeing these other people as father figures, like Murray in the fantasy he has in the beginning. Murray says to him in his fantasy, if I had a son, I'd want him to be just like you. And then his mom tells him that Thomas Wayne's his father. So then he sees Thomas as his father figure. And then both of these men acknowledged Arthur's existence and then kicked him aside. Both of them have insulted him and, you know, thrown him away. So this is where, I guess, the part of the movie where I'm like, wow, I'm watching my brother on the screen. Because if we were to try to diagnose Arthur or the Joker, I I mean, I look at that and I think schizophrenia and Tourette's. And my brother, who my mom left my dad, he never had a father figure. When he finally met his biological father, he was a total screw up and a drug dealer and kicked my brother aside. Uh, My brother was not, he didn't laugh and he didn't act the way Joaquin Phoenix did on screen, but it was similar in all the other ways of he had tics, he had things he would do, he would laugh nervously actually, and he would have delusions. Wow. And then when you look at his mother, now our mother never abused us. She never tied us to, you know, a hot water heater or anything like that. But when there's that bathtub scene where he says, I want to be a comedian. And the mom says, well, don't you have to be funny to do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah. my mom to a T. Like just no support. Nothing. When I told her I was starting a podcast, she said, why would you do that? She said, why would you quit your job? You're going to be homeless if you can't pay your bills. Hmm. That's my mom. And I saw her on the screen and I saw my brother on the screen. You know, and nowadays we hear the word triggered as being offended. But Mm -hmm. I was like, holy s***. This hit really close to home. Punched me in the gut. If you call it triggered, that's fine. But yeah. I see why you've related so much. You said this is like in your top five movies now? Yeah, and I guess it's probably just because I felt it was so relatable, you know? It is such a powerful movie. Like, there's so many details we haven't even mentioned because you just got to see the movie Mm -hmm. to really appreciate it. And we've only seen it once. I'm really looking forward to seeing it again and watching for the details that I wasn't drawn to at first, like the rats. (laughs) And... Mm -hmm. I love it. It's the deepest and darkest poetic movie I've ever seen in my life. For me personally, it really inspires empathy. Mm -hmm, I think so. Because most people get their information through the media. The way the media portrays him is just this crazy, unfunny loser that's really bad at stand-up. And then he goes and does a bunch of terrible things. But there's so much nuance and other factors to it. Like... Mm -hmm. 
the abuse and the mental disorders and the medication being cut and people just being generally terrible to him and no father figure, a mother that's not supportive. Mm-hmm. There's just so much. Well, that's what I love his job. about these movies are like, I feel like growing up, it was like the bad guy or the good guy. And the bad guy was always the bad guy. And there's nothing good about him. Marvel and movies. the good guy was the good guy. <laughs> but in this movie, I was like, I love the bad guy. Like, I want to cradle him in my arms <laughs> and feed him a million cheeseburgers. You said you wanted to just give him a hug. Cause... So that's what I liked was how intricate the story was to not only make you realize, like, he's bad because he's murdering people, but to make you feel so compassionate and feel bad for him and want to support him and root for him at the same time. Yeah, because you realize that if he would have had that influence on his life, it could have made a huge difference for all the people that were negatively impacted by his actions. So after Arthur finds all this out about his childhood, which he had obviously been emotionally blocking out, Arthur returns to the hospital and tells Penny that he thought his life was a tragedy, but now he sees it as a comedy. And with that, he smothers Penny to death. Yeah. Uh, Arthur goes back home and breaks into Sophie's apartment. He's just sitting on the couch at this point and just wet from the rain, sad. And Sophie sees him and is terrified, asking him to leave for the sake of her daughter. So at this point, you're like, wait, they were dating before. It seemed like everything was going well. She was at the hospital supporting him when his mom was sick. But then we get another big reveal. That everything and every moment featuring Sophie, it was pretty much just in Arthur's head. Except maybe when he freaked her out and she said, are you following me? <laughs> that might have been, oh, yeah. been real. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, when he did the stand-up routine and she was sitting in the club, I mean, obviously she wasn't there. So this was an imagination or a delusion that she was there supporting him. But at the beginning of his stand-up routine, it was terrible. You know, he was choking. He was laughing. He couldn't get the words out. But then you kind of get this montage of people start laughing at him and people are going along with it. But I'm assuming the rest of his routine went about as poorly as the beginning did. Mm -hmm. Right. And you realize that the laughter was in his head. He thought he was doing great. Then you see the reaction of Murray. Did we get to the part where Murray calls him? Mm-hmm. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to when Arthur starts to get ready for his appearance on Murray's show. And he's visited in his apartment by Randall and another former co-worker named Gary. And they offer condolences after they hear about Penny's death. But they mention Burke and Garrity going to their apartments to question them about the subway murders. Arthur then brutally stabs Randall to death. But he lets the frightened Gary go home since he was the only one at Haha's that was nice to him. Arthur then dyes his hair green, puts on full clown makeup, and goes out in his burgundy suit. And Randall is the one who gave Arthur the gun in the beginning, just in case people forgot about that, which kind of started the ball rolling on a lot of this stuff, knowing that Arthur has this condition. Yeah. And this scene is really intense. And uh, this whole time you're seeing Joaquin Phoenix you know, with his shirt off or whatever, and he's super skinny. Like he, you see all of his bones protruding through his skin. And this scene, he has, I think he has the white makeup on, but nothing else. And he's kind of hanging out in the doorway, in the doorframe, talking to these two men. And he doesn't even look human anymore. He looks animalistic. And he's just locked on to his coworker that gave him the gun. Yeah. And it's freaky. And then there's the comic relief of the other, his other coworker. He happens to be a little person. And he can't get out of the apartment because he can't reach the, the lock and chain. Oh, and yeah. Arthur has to let him out. And you don't know when he's going to let him out, if he's going to kill him or if he's going to let him out. And there's this like tension that is just thick as thick as dirt in the air right there. So it's just insane and incredible scene. Makes you appreciate all the thought that goes into crafting these scenes. It's just such a well-crafted movie. Moving on, uh, Burke and Garrity find Arthur dancing in the street and move in to arrest him. And that's like the famous scene where he's dancing on those steps. Arthur runs and they chase him into the subway train where dozens of other Gotham citizens are dressed like clowns after being inspired by the murders. As the detectives pursue Arthur, one clown gets in the way and Burke accidentally shoots him dead. 
the clowns pull the detectives out of the subway and start beating them, allowing Arthur to get away. And this is when Arthur does his little Joker jig dance. That subway scene is when you really start to see that it's not just Arthur that's feeling suppressed or beat down by the people in control of the city. You start to see that a lot of residents of Gotham are fed up with the way things are and they want to get back at the powers that be. Yeah, definitely. It's the turning of the tables, turning of the tide there. At the TV station, Arthur meets Murray and his agent, Jean. Before he goes on, Arthur asks Murray to introduce him as the Joker, since Murray referred to him as such when playing his clip. Arthur goes out as the show begins. He awkwardly tells Murray a joke before admitting to the subway murders. Murray and the audience slowly realize that Arthur is being serious. Arthur argues that the audience only cares for the victims because Thomas Wayne spoke for them, but anyone else like Arthur would be ignored and walked over. Murray and the audience grow angrier with Arthur, but so does he. Murray scolds Arthur, which escalates into Arthur snapping and pretty much blowing Murray's brains out in front of everyone. The audience runs away in terror, and the news of the murder immediately hits the airwaves. Yeah, and he frames this as a joke, and the whole movie kind of makes you think that he's going to shoot himself on screen but he ends up shooting Murray instead. Well, that's something that they kind of left out of the description is before he goes, he's sitting in his apartment rehearsing and practicing Mm -hmm. what he's going to do and say on the show. And this is the taxi driver scene where Robert De Niro and taxi driver, he was saying, are you talking to me? I think you're talking to me. And he does this whole thing and he pulls out a gun. Well, then you have De Niro as the talk show host and you have Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker rehearsing what he's going to do on the show. And everyone says this whole movie's a ripoff of Taxi Driver, but I'm like, no, it's just that one scene. It's a nod to that. And then the shooting and everything that goes out. I, I remember another movie called Broadcast News where it was a news broadcaster just flips out on air. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, oh, this reminds me of that. And this reminds me of so many other cult classic movies from the 80s and 70s. That's cool that they got Robert De Niro to be part of this movie after getting so much inspiration from Taxi Driver. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. Something I, I think a YouTube video I watched, they pointed out how almost this whole little arc within the movie, or the whole movie itself, like... It was kind of set up like a joke, the way a joke will start out making you think it's going to go one way and setting the expectation for a certain punchline, but then at the end it subverts your expectations and does a completely different thing you weren't expecting and how it kind of mirrors a joke the way he, the movie makes you expect that he's going to kill himself, but then he shoots Murray instead and you're like, whoa. I kind of wondered about I don't know. I'm just saying, like, it's kind of built like a joke would be, you know? Mmm, I see. Yeah. Very interesting. So, Gotham is now overrun by rioting citizens dressed as clowns after hearing about what Arthur did. The Waynes leave a movie theater to find the chaos in the streets. Thomas takes Martha and Bruce into an alley, but one clown follows them and tells Thomas he's getting what he deserves. With that, he shoots Thomas and Martha dead in front of Bruce. Meanwhile, Arthur has been arrested and is being taken to the police, but clowns in an ambulance run into the police car and free Arthur. The rioters then cheer Arthur on as he stands on a car and embraces their admiration. Which this whole scene where the clowns are there because his father called everyone clowns and now they're behaving that way. And then it's not even the Joker who kills, you know, Bruce's parents. It's just some random guy wearing a clown mask. And not that anyone deserves to be murdered, but it's that whole throwing everything on its head again. And this man is the one that insulted the people and wasn't sympathetic. And now he's the one on the other end of a gun. And this is what creates Batman. Yeah, man, it's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Sometime later, Arthur is locked up in Arkham. He meets a new social worker, and he says he wants to tell her a joke, but she wouldn't get it. A few minutes later, Arthur then steps out of the room, leaving a trail of bloody footprints behind before he's chased around by orderlies. Did you guys like this scene, this final scene? Um, the footprints. I was like, (gasps) 
because I didn't think they were going to be bloody. But then, like, the end where he's literally being chased, it felt kind of, I don't know, it felt like a comedy ending. It was kind of creepy. Why do you ask? Because I I wanted the movie to end when he was up on top of the the cop car or whatever, dancing, Mm -hmm. and the crowd was cheering him. I I think it should have just ended right there. But then I guess they couldn't let the Joker win, so they had to put him back in the asylum or something and show that he was under control, I guess. Like, I don't know. It just, that whole final scene where he's in there and he says, you wouldn't get it. I didn't get that, that whole end sequence. I just didn't get it. It's interesting you say that because a theory that I heard, well, before I go into that, the thing about this movie is, like I said earlier, you walk out feeling like the movie left so many mysteries and so many open ends not just on how you should feel, but what the heck actually happened. And he says that, I'm thinking of a joke, you wouldn't get it. And then he walks out with blood on his shoes, implying that he killed his therapist. But anyway, this theory I'm talking about, it points out that all the clocks, when he's talking to his therapist in the beginning, or social worker, sorry, in the beginning, and it shows the clock, and it's at 11.11, and she asked him if he remembers his time in the asylum, implying that he had been in the asylum before, and shows him banging his head on the door, and the clock in there says 11-11 as well. So it's like implying that this was at the same time. So the theory is that the entire movie takes place in his head from the room at the end of the movie. It's a wacky theory, but that he was in that room the whole time, and the entire movie was the joke that he's talking about that he says she wouldn't get it. That's just kind of a wild theory that I thought it was interesting. It's plausible. Again, this whole movie, it leaves those mysteries open because it's fun to wonder. Like, But even though it leaves mysteries, there's so much to think about, so much that has social implications without having an agenda. But I don't want to get distracted with a theory before we were there any other details that this thing left out because i well there was a lot there were some that popped into my head i can't remember now i i hit the ones that you know i felt that were important like the interaction with his mother or him rehearsing what he was going to do you know like Mm -hmm. the fact that they left that scene out in the synopsis i'm like really (laughs) another thing is when he climbed into the refrigerator Oh, yeah. After the police were trying to get a hold of him, he climbs into a refrigerator that locks from the outside so you can't get out from the inside. Then the next scene is the Murray show calling him Mm -hmm. and asking him to be on the show, which I still have no idea how the refrigerator thing fits together. Did you hear the fridge thing other than me on a conspiracy or a theory thing? No. Oh. What are you talking about? Well, I just wanted to make sure, because I thought that that was an old-fashioned fridge, but I'm not sure. Well, the fridge thing was a part of that conspiracy that the whole thing happened in his head. Okay. Because how would he get out of the fridge? But Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Oh, when he's on a date with Sophie, which we later learn Sophie being there was all in his head, but before the whole town is wearing clown masks, he sees a woman in the back of a taxi wearing a clown mask like she was inspired by the thing. And I learned this from another conspiracy video, but it turns out the person in the back of the taxi is actually the woman that the three guys were harassing on the subway because she was wearing the same coat that the woman was wearing on the subway. So it was implying that in this fantasy, Arthur was seeing himself as a hero of that woman because, like, he killed the guys that were harassing her. You know, because we know he was fantasizing in that scene because he was on a date with that girl. And then he sees that woman wearing the clown mask like she's almost like his disciple or something now. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Even though on the subway when the guys are harassing her and she looks over to Arthur for help. And then he starts maniacally laughing. She's like, I'm out of here because you're all crazy. (laughs) Was there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about? I didn't understand the backlash towards it. I didn't understand the logic of saying it was some incel movie. In fact, if you really look at it, uh, the the clowns in the street are holding up like anti-fascism signs. I mean, that's actually more of an Antifa thing than 
an incel thing, which is the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, so I don't understand the backlash. I don't understand where people got these weird ideas about the film. I can understand people from the Aurora shooting and whatnot thinking, why are you making this because of the unfounded rumor? But outside of that, anyone that had some sort of idea of what this movie was about was probably wrong. Even me, I went into it not understanding what the movie was about. I don't think anyone could have possibly understood what it was about until you see it because it's so complicated. Something you said sparked a thought in my head and now I can't remember. Oh, the incel thing. It's almost like the people that wrote those articles didn't even see the movie because, I mean, involuntarily celibate, that's completely has to do with sex. And this movie, besides that one fantasy of him walking in to make out with that girl, nothing, none of his problems had to do with him not having sex or like wanting to have sex. There was so much more to it than that. So the fact that they could just parse it down to incel training manual, just slap a quick label on it, and it doesn't even make sense. Like nothing in this movie says that Arthur was resentful because people didn't want to have sex with him. So. I mean, his his notebook had some pornography in it and stuff like that, but it was not his driving motivation at all. Mm-hmm. Right. It just shows how unreliable the media can be. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people that just trust the media will look at that and be like, oh, guess I'm not going to see that. I remember when Braveheart came out, reading a review from somebody saying, the costumes were the best part of the movie. <laughs> what? You know, and this is this is my whole thing. And, and people think that I've been railing and ranting against bad reviews or people that harass podcasters when really I've been kind of ranting about this my entire life where when I read critical reviews or when I read anything where somebody's bashing somebody else, I just think you're just a hateful person and there's nothing constructive here because when you know you read amazon reviews or read movie reviews or read any reviews for anything you're just going to find people that just shit all over stuff and this one movie review of braveheart was just this is a god awful movie this is horrible and the best thing about it was the costumes and now we fast forward to today's world with social media and all these movements, all these people that think that their idea or their movement is the most important thing on earth. And if you don't agree with them, then they're going to label you as whatever. And here we have them calling this movie something that it absolutely was not. It was just a great movie that was more about mental illness, mental health and violence and it wasn't glorifying violence it was more or less showing the issues with our society and how we treat the mentally ill and if anyone wanted to criticize the movie you could say it does stigmatize people with mental illnesses i could get that argument that's about the only argument i could get as far as a negative review of the movie (laughs) you know it is interesting that the media attacked the movie so hard because The movie actually does seem to paint the media in a, you know, like, look at the way Murray was making fun of Joker and what an impact it had on him. It forces the media to think about how their words could affect the people they're talking about, you know, and that might be a scary thought to them. Like, they don't want to think about that. They just want to think about their sensational headlines and getting clicks. When I walked out of the movie, I was uh, I was almost in tears. Like it, it really messed with me for like wow. a day or two. Did you see it more than once? I have not gone back and seen it a second time yet. I want to. Yeah, me too. One other thing I want to mention is just Joaquin Phoenix's performance. It's unbelievable. Like even the difference between the laughs, like he had a laugh for when he was uncomfortable or stressed out. But then like in the end, in the asylum, the laugh he did was actually a genuine laugh. You know, it wasn't his tick. He was genuinely laughing because you see that that's because of what he's been warped into. That's what brings him genuine happiness now. And it's a scary thought to think about. It's it's character development and it's a story arc, something that most movies, especially comic book movies, have none of. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. Justice League. (laughs) 
that's another thing I was thinking. Like, it had a good story, but it was so much more focused on developing a character. Like, the best character development I've ever seen for a comic book based movie i mean it's some of the best character development i've seen in a movie period Mm -hmm. because movies don't focus on the character they give you these one-dimensional good guy and bad guys that have cheesy one-liners and you know they always have to do these cliche things that the bad guy has to establish how evil he is by killing off one of his own minions for failing a mission and blah 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 and then the you know it's just so stupid and it's so regurgitated and to really get into a character's head and feel it mm-hmm. you have to do this and we don't do this anymore and this is why this movie broke the mold yeah they weren't concerned about this big spectacle or this big set piece where there's this epic battle and they started small and focused on the character and took their time building mm-hmm. him totally and that's what time. people want to see like feels like big budget movies are afraid to waste too much time focusing on small things but that's what like you're saying that's what really makes you sympathize with a character and get to know them is those small moments watching them in their daily life and what they're doing building their character it's really refreshing to see so much time spent on the actual crafting of a character than these big set pieces that they need to get to so they rush everything else i love that there was no huge fight scene i found it way more interesting that way yeah but you know what movie did do a great job of no character development and making the bad guy the bad guy? No. Aquaman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you were talking about what doesn't make a good movie, you know? You're just Aquaman obsessed with, with the, Jason Momoa. The, I did, I'm not complimenting Aquaman. I'm saying it was a terribly done movie. Oh, I thought you said they did a really good job. No, they did a terrible character. job of, of character development. And oh. making the bad guy the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I didn't uh, see Aquaman. The trailer was enough for me to uh, want to throw up a little in my mouth. Well, you saw the whole movie probably in the trailer. So. Yeah, yeah, true. Did you see the octopus playing the drums? Because that's the oh highlight. Is that, is that kind of like in the <laughs> Jurassic World movie, the, the guy with the two martinis and you know one in each hand? Oh, yeah. or <laughs> Wasn't that Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he, made that, he was in it. Jurassic World was just one giant product placement. <laughs> and again, it's another movie where there's zero character development. It's just, let's take these already established personalities and throw them into a new scenario. And Oh, yeah, totally. You know. Take the most popular guy in Hollywood at the time, Chris Pratt, and then... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as far as all the Marvel movies go, I think the first Iron Man is the only one that has... A little bit of character development because you get to see uh you know stark go from this you know weapons war mongol mongrel guy to uh to iron man <laughs> and and yeah. that, to this day i think that's still one of my favorite marvel movies because of that same i love marvel but it's more of like an escapism type of thing than a movie like Joker where you're going to be thinking about it for a long time because it is so much more simple and more focused on the big spectacle and just telling you what's good and what's not good. I mean, there's some nuance to it, but it's not like the Joker where it exercises your brain like this. Mm -hmm. There's only one other movie that kind of made me think about the good guy and bad guy and sort of like who's the good guy and who really is the bad guy and it's a uh, asian cinema film called kashern based off of a, a cartoon and it's eye candy and it's not the best like uh, i don't know they should have edited the movie probably down about 30 minutes but um but at the end you're like wait i thought he was the hero and this was the bad guy and in the end you're like uh, not so much i'll have to look yeah. that up And I like when they do that, when they turn everything on its head. Okay, what just popped in my head, I can't not mention this because um, Captain America Civil War is a Marvel movie that did a really good job. Because that was the one Marvel movie where there was nuance because it was Captain America versus Iron Man. And they both had really good points and they were opposite opinions, but it did have that gray have you seen yeah, that Yeah, in fact, one? that's probably my second favorite Marvel movie. And I hated the first Captain America movie. I was like, this is just garbage. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm a really, I'm real 
particular about my movies. Like I didn't even watch any of the uh, Thor movies. I'm just like, no, I'm not going to watch them. So. Yeah, Thor 1 and 2 are not worth it. Um, I like Thor. <laughs> <laughs> you like it when he takes his shirt off. Exactly. But yeah, Civil War was was great. And it was because it blurred that line of who's right and who's wrong and mm. who should you follow the rules or should you go against them when you feel it's not right? Little things like that. And I appreciate yeah. it. Well, since we're all talking about our favorite movies, mine's Pirates of yeah. the Caribbean. So Captain Jack Sparrow, I thought his character was very well developed. So there you go. Yeah, he did a good job with that. And what was, I was it World's much. End? I think it was the third one when they like mm-hmm. flip the the boat upside down and they like go into the upside down like oh. cool. yeah oh yeah to see the green the green yeah. flash mm-hmm. is that when he's like on his boat um in like a desert there's like a bunch of clones of himself yeah I think that is the one where they're trying to find him in Davy Jones' locker and they're like wait up is down and then they're running on the ship oh yeah yeah that was I very love, funny I love those movies so I much. just realized I haven't been talking into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if it's been hard to hear me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like the Pirates of the Caribbean, but I, I know like by the end of it, I was like, okay, cue the epic mu- music and we're going to have this ridiculously stupid sword fight for the next five minutes and then we can get back to the plot. <laughs> right. yeah. you, always, you always knew where it was going. <laughs> well, it was really fun talking to you about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a standout movie. It's something that I think will get better with age because people who wanted to smack a quick label on it will think about it more and hopefully give it a fair chance. Mm-hmm. But Gotta go on with an open mind. When you reached out to uh, me and said, do you want to talk about this? I was like, hell yeah, I want to talk about this. <laughs> we, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it because, well, don't even need to say it. We just talked about it for an hour. You liked it. Yeah, yeah, I did. And I think it just stands out. It's mm. not like anything that we've gotten in my lifetime. You know? Would you say it's better than Aquaman? A little bit. <laughs> I think uh, Peppa Pig is better than Aquaman. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming You're on, well. Justin. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you, Justin, for taking the time to talk with us about this movie. I just want to say some words before we wrap this episode up. In the beginning of our discussion with Justin, we mentioned the media buzz and the role they played with all the hype around this movie. And I realized this while listening to Joaquin Phoenix talk to his sisters on their podcast, Launch Left, which I highly recommend you check out if you want to think more about this. But Joaquin mentioned how it was the media that started the narrative of Killer Clown and Kill the Rich. It was plastered on the newspapers and stuff like that. And those headlines were completely manufactured by the media. That's not what Arthur had in mind. He didn't want to kill the rich or start some kind of movement. He was just a mentally ill man defending himself. And you see the role that the media played in creating this uprising because they put a label on what Arthur had done and turned it into this big anarchist movement when Arthur was really just defending himself at the time of the act. And I think it's interesting that the media kind of did the same thing with the release of Joker in the real world, manufacturing a narrative about incels or glorifying violence. But we all know what Joker becomes. He's a supervillain. Everyone knows that he's not right. He's not a hero. We accept the fact that this is the making of a villain. The things he does in the movie are not right. They're not the right thing to do. They're terrible acts. But the way the movie is crafted, you can see how he gets there slowly. And you can still have empathy for this massive villain. And I think it's important. I mean, the media was also telling people this movie might inspire a mass shooting, even though they didn't say anything like that about Avengers Endgame, which had probably more screen time of violence. You know, this is just another interesting facet of this film. And as a podcaster that creates things that are a form of a media outlet with thousands of listeners, it really makes you think about the responsibility you have, you know, to have your own voice and to help others share theirs. 
but not to try to dictate the meaning of something we didn't create or take someone else's words and manipulate them to change the meaning because that's so unfair to the person who created the thing and it's kind of an unfair thing to do unless it's clearly in a comedic fashion just say your own words you know have your own voice when we started the voice of the victim podcast one of the things i wanted to focus on was looking into the past of the perpetrators and trying to identify what other factors played into where they ended up and of course there's never a justification for victimizing another person But more often than not, there are factors beyond the person's control that may have had an impact on the bad decisions they've made. This is why the Joker really stood out to me, because if I could have this little bit of empathy for a terrible villain, how much more could I find empathy for other people that were dealt a tough hand in life and may have committed smaller victimless crimes like turning to drugs to mask the pain of real-life trauma? Some people use terms like junkies or druggies. They're condescending titles to put on somebody that they don't really know. Is it fair to look at people like this as less important than us because they ended up in a bad spot? Well, after watching this movie, no, it's not fair. But Joker really helped me to think deeply about the way I view other people in the world. So many people just want to pick a side and anchor down on their beliefs, and they just want to be right. So many people want to believe that areas of life with a lot of complexity can be black and white, even though they have so much nuance behind them. I'm guilty of doing this myself, and I'm sure I've done it on our podcast at times, but this movie really inspired me to try to be more empathetic. Try to be kind to everyone, no matter what differences we may have, and don't debate with people with the goal of winning and being right but instead with the goal of trying to understand the other side and improve yourself. I've said it before, but nobody really has it all figured out. Life is complex, and we can't label or judge others based on appearances or where they are in life. The Joker shows how the hand you're dealt really impacts where you end up. We all get dealt different hands, and I think if we're one of the lucky ones that gets dealt a good hand... We can really use those good circumstances to try to help others, kind of like Batman eventually does, instead of using it to feed our ego the way the guys on the subway did. You know, they made fun of Arthur and assaulted a person who clearly had a mental disorder. They forced him to defend himself, which gave him a taste of violence. It's a really extreme depiction, and it's not likely that a person will be treated that poorly by everybody in their life, and... It's important to remember, this is a fictional story about a fictional city, Gotham. It's not representing our real world. It is a comic book movie, but it does have things that can really apply to us. But throughout the movie, you can really see Arthur's slow descent down into madness and anger. In the beginning of the movie, when Arthur was jumped by those kids and his boss was yelling at him about it, He actually said they were just kids and like he had let it go. And he was telling his boss that he didn't try to get back at them because they were just kids. He just wanted to sign back. And in the beginning, when he imagined himself on the talk show, he had such a childlike innocence to him. You know, he was a good person, but he was dealt a terrible hand and ended up committing horrible crimes. I mean, think about it. He was abused by his mother's boyfriend. He was lied to about his childhood. He was fired from his job. He was beaten up multiple times. He had been abandoned by his father. He was rejected and humiliated by both the men who he had used to replace his father figure in his mind. And his mother told him he wasn't funny, knowing that stand-up comedy was his passion. And then the mental disorders. And the government cut the budget of the social services leading him to lose his medication all while the richest man in the city called lower class people clowns and ignored their real problems while pretending to care about them to bolster his political image so he could run for mayor now justin mentioned in our conversation that the only thing he could really see the media having a valid point for is that This movie might stigmatize mental illness, but the movie wasn't saying that mental illness is what caused him to turn out the way he did. 
He would have been just fine living with his mental illness if he was properly medicated and treated with kindness and respect by other people. I know we can't control the way other people treat us, but we can control the way we treat other people. And if we are kind to other people, we can at least know that we're not contributing to something like this. Because mental illness does not cause violence. But it can make it harder for people to control their emotions when they're constantly being beat down by other people. And overall, I think this movie is a great commentary without trying to have an agenda. So please let us know if you got a chance to see the movie and what you thought about it. Hopefully you saw it before you listened to our conversation because we don't want to spoil anything. But you know what? If you don't care about spoilers, that's cool too. So thank you for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at VOV Pod. You can email us anytime at VOVpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, Voice of the Victim Support System. And all those links will be in the show notes. So thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.